Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. This episode is proudly sponsored by Vivino, the world's largest online wine marketplace. The Vivino app makes it easy to choose wine. Enjoy expert team support, door-to-door delivery, and honest wine reviews to help you choose the perfect wine for every occasion. Vivino, download the app on Apple or Android and discover an easier way to choose wine. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm very pleased this week to have as a guest Erica Ducey, who is the Chief Content Officer at Pix Wine. Welcome to the show, Erica. I look forward to, to our talk. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm thrilled to be here with you. You know I always love to chat with you, so excited for our conversation. Well, in this case, you're going to be doing most of the talking instead of me, so that that will be the difference. Well, give us a little bit of background of you professionally and how you got to where you are. I mean, we met when you were a couple of steps backward, not backward, but you know, earlier on your journey, and uh, you've made some big leaps since, so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I really come from a background of big publishing. So I worked for a lot of big publishing companies. I ran the travel brand Fodors at Random House uh, way back. I ran the digital for Savour, which was a food and wine and travel publication. Ran digital at Condé Nast for Architectural Digest. And so a lot of my earlier career, even at the digital director level, was really about helping brands learn how to grow their audiences and create content for what at that time was more of an emerging digital audience. So I you know, worked with a lot of big brands and then got to a certain point in my career where I had, uh, as a side passion, gone through all the sommelier certifications through WSET and had written a cocktail book. And I said, you know, I think I am at the point where I want to step away from big publishing, and I want to go back to my earlier roots, which had been in startups. So I did start out at a a music startup right at the turn of the century, the big Y2K.com sort of boom and bust cycle. That's where I started out my career. And so I decided to really go down the road of wine as a topic and uh, approached a company that I had known a lot of people were using called 750. 750, this was a platform for people in the wine and spirits industry in the US to do a variety of things. And I saw for them an opportunity to start a trade publication. And this wouldn't be any sort of just regular trade publication, but one that really felt relevant to the people who were actually working in the trade, not for the C-suite. So for 
people who were working at retail, psalms on the floor, importers who were knocking on doors. That type of audience was who I was interested in engaging with. And uh, so I pitched the concept of the publication that would become the 750 Daily and went on to work with 750 for several years, founding and raising up that publication to the point where it won you know, many, many awards, editorial awards and industry awards. After that, I went over to VinePair, and VinePair is the publication in the U.S. with the biggest number of drinks readers every month. At the time, we had about 5 million users every month and worked with them for a period where I helped them create also a trade vertical and expand their journalism in some interesting ways. So that was, you know, the next phase of my career. And that led us to this latest phase, which is at PIX. And PIX is a wine discovery platform. Now it's behind a closed beta right now. So a lot of people in the industry, you know, may just be hearing about it and consumers also are just hearing about it. But it's a really interesting type of platform because it takes pieces of different different platforms that are out there and kind of combines them in a new way. So one of the pieces of PIX is utility. And this is really creating a hub for wine content uh, on the web. So for example, if you were to come into PIX and you know search for some wine, there will be different ways to engage with the content. You could go directly to product detail page and find all the offers that are related to it, or you could find related collections. So, so essentially on this utility piece of PIX, what we're looking to do is you can think about it like like Netflix or Audible, those platforms do a really good job of taking a vast universe and making it small. So think about uh, your Netflix feed that you see pop up on your screen. There's, you know, the top picks for Steve. There's the top picks in the US right now. There maybe you like, you know, horror movies. There's the top trending horror movies. So it's taking these types of rubrics and applying them to wine, which hasn't been done in a really effective way before. And the way that we do it a little bit differently is that we don't just have an algorithm or a machine trying to, to do this. We have a team of real people, wine experts who are led by a master of wine, David Round, based in the UK. And they really are working to create a digestible way to find and buy wine in the U.S. Later, we'll expand, but starting out in the U.S. So that's one pillar of picks. Another is content. Content, you know, as we've as we've just laid out, is really my baby. And so I started a, the publication, The Drop, that launched in June. And working with me on that is a renowned wine editor who's based in Germany named Felicity Carter. We also have a staff editor a staff writer in New York named Janice Williams and various other people working with us, as well as a roster of really fantastic writers. So we're publishing many times a week. We're publishing all types of stories and we're looking for ways to get people engaged and interested in wine in new ways. So we're not just doing kind of the top, you know, roundups of these are the bottles to buy, but we're looking at, can we get excited, people excited about wine? 
minds in ways that are kind of unconventional. So actually, one of our top performing articles right now is wine horoscopes. That sounds a little crazy, but we actually are laying out each month all of the different horoscopes. And we have a well-known wine writer, Alice Firing, matching the horoscopes to the wine. That's super fun. Really? <laughs> I didn't know that. I know Alice. It didn't sound like what something she would do, but it's interesting to hear. Yeah, that's really fun. And then, you know, we we are looking at pop culture. What are the wines that they're drinking on succession? You know, what are the wines to drink with all of the, you know, television premieres that are coming up in November? So these are these kind of different ways of thinking about wine is that that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you go to the site, which is Pix.Wine, you'll find our content there, and then you'll be able to kind of get a sense of all the different things we're doing. But that's the second pillar of Pix. And then the third pillar is really what we think of as access. And what we mean by that is not a snooty, exclusive type of access, but what we're talking about is experiences and early, early access to flash sales or discount codes, things that we will be able to provide the users and subscribers of PICS will be able to provide them with these additional benefits that those three things together, utility, content, and access brings a new type of platform to, to the consumer wine buying space that we hope will be really compelling. Wow. Okay. So you're uh, heading up the content portion, the balance of content versus commercial sales. Obviously, commercial sales is one of the revenue models. And content is kind of, there's a lot of argument in the industry about, you know, the death of publishing in general and the future of journalism and the role of journalism, the bias of certain publications, certainly in the general news category, but also even in the wine category. Where do you guys fit on the continuum of super wine geeky only for academics all the way to some very, very simple, you know, here's the five different kinds of wine that you need to know about? Sure. Well, first I'll make a correction. So the we don't actually sell wine on Picks. So on on Picks what we're doing is bringing all of the offers that are available to someone onto one platform. So for example, if you were to go on Google right now and search a certain bottle of wine, you may go onto a website uh, of a store and get all the way down the funnel and not know that they're unable to ship to you in your certain zip code. Maybe it's, you know, you're in a certain state or what have you that it, you're not able to ship to. So what we're doing is making all of the offers that we're surfacing them. And then we also are going to be sourcing the different ways that, that you could receive them. So for example, we'll list what is the fastest delivery? What is the delivery on a refrigerated truck at some point? We should be able to do that. What is the delivery that is uh, free, right? So all of the different use cases, or here is the wine that is closest to you. Here is the wine, you know, closest to your destination. Those use cases are all things that we're looking to solve for at some point, but we actually don't conduct the sales on our site. So the word that comes to mind is Meta. And in spite of the fact that they just changed the name of Facebook to Meta, or at least the parent company, it's kind of an overarching thing. It's similar, I, I think, in some respect to like Trivago or Hotels.com. Would that be a kayak? 
Kayak would be the... Yeah, and I think kayak.com for a long time was, was a similar platform. But your original question was about, was about journalism. So I'll get back to that. So it's, it's interesting that you say, is this a site for wine geeks? Because Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago called us one of the best websites for wine geeks. And so that, that actually is you know a consumer publication calling us a publication for wine geeks, which we love because I think that is definitely one area of content that we feel strongly about. We want to help people build knowledge and we love debunking things that are sort of rumors or assumptions in the industry about how sulfites work or you know any any sort of topics like that. If we can debunk it and if we can find uh, the facts around a certain topic, we'll jump in and do that. And we we love doing that. Well, let me jump in right there because that's the question I get asked a lot. You probably do too. I you know I'm allergic to sulfites, and then you go into the explanation how well their sulfites are naturally produced in the fermentation process and they needed to be added at some level to preserve the entire, yada, 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 yada. Well, how do you debunk that? Well, yeah, we, we talk to scientists and, and we ask them about it. And we also, you know, there, I mean, it's a, it's a multi-layered issue. You know, we've got, there's things in wine like biogenic amines and so forth. So there's, you can, you can go onto the, onto the site, read the article, like learn all of the different layers of information about that particular topic. But, you know, generally I'd say the thing that we found is that there's not a lot of publications out there that are really doing the original research of talking to scientists who have actually studied these topics, right? What they're doing is just like asking a couple, you know, people in the wine industry, well, what do you think about sulfites? What do you think about sulfites? Well, what we're doing is actually going deeper. So that's one area of our content. But another area of our content that's been really popular is our opinion pieces. So there was an opinion piece just this week from a winemaker and author in Australia, Rachel Signer, who was talking about, you know, is it time to embrace flaws in wine? And she, she, she built the case for that. And so a, a lot, what we're finding is that there aren't a lot of outlets for those types of conversations. And we're providing an outlet for those discussions to happen. And we're getting into some really fantastic further discussions on Twitter and on social platforms with people who are on both sides of the issue. So those types of articles are really fun. But, you know, those, those are really more the wine geeky side. We also are doing uh, wine content for people who maybe newer to wine, they want to build some knowledge, or they just want to have a fun, interesting read related to something about pop culture or to one of the celebrities that they may be familiar with. So I'd say we run the gamut from collectors and wine lovers all the way to content for people who are new to wine. So the style of writing is very different from what you see in many wine publications, because it's not the uh, traditional fruit cherries, smoke, tobacco, fried gooseberries, those kinds of things, descriptors that nobody necessarily really tastes or believes in, but thinks that's the way it's supposed to be described and discussed, as opposed to, uh, I love Robert Joseph's comment on, do I like it? I mean, he even you know, has a website called doilikeit.com, and that's kind of the bottom line there. How do you take the snootiness out of wine writing and, and that kind of default to geekiness that people feel, you know, not comfortably part of? Yeah. I mean, that that's a great question because we do work very intentionally with our writers on this topic. So when 
when our writers are starting to use wine jargon, we really go back to them and query that and ask them to break it down into layman's terms. Because, you know, we don't need to create additional barriers to wine. One of the things that I noticed working at Vine Pair, which was a publication that did both spirits, beer, and wine in terms of its coverage area is that spirits and spirits coverage really took off over the time I was there. Beer coverage, you know, stayed about steady, but wine coverage started to go down in terms of audience. So my concern and what I think we've seen in some of the industry stats around sales is that wine is losing share of voice. And I think Part of the problem is how we talk about wine. So how do we make wine more accessible to more people? That is something that we're working on consistently. And it comes down to everything from, you know, the language we're using, the examples we're giving, the way we're framing, you know, finding these different ways into wine where we're referencing music or, you know, sports or other areas of people's lives that they feel more comfortable with and using those as a lens through which to get into wine or think about how wine can be relevant through something they're already passionate about. That's that's one of the things we really try to dial in. Cool. I had been toying on and off of writing an article about, I've been collecting some of the terms that we all use. And uh, just as an example, one of them is minerality. It sounds real. It sounds scientific. It seems to make sense that if you have a, a vineyard with rock underneath it, that the taste or flavor of the rocks comes through. But if you look into the science of it, no, that's not true because the minerals are breaking down to whatever their smallest unit is and getting absorbed with the water, but they don't maintain their integrity in the plant itself, they get combined into other molecules and so forth. So you don't taste the rock, so to speak. So when people come to me and say, here, lick this rock, this is what this wine tastes for. Sometimes the metaphor works, but the science beneath it is <laughs> wrong or not, not, not real. You want to comment on that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think minerality is an interesting one because there's, there's so many different ways to approach that. So, so for example, I, I tend to like wines that have a, like a salty quality to them. You could call that, you know, a volcanic white from Sicily. You could call that a mineral mineral driven white or you know comment on its minerality but generally i'll just say something like you know it tastes a bit salty <laughs> you know you can you can break down those terms and look for ways to make it a little bit more accessible through the language like one of the things that drives me nuts in a similar way is like when people call wine linear like who is going to know what a linear wine is and what's even the opposite of that like those types of terms i think scare people away from wine and are not really useful. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is to our writers and to ourselves is who are we writing this for? Are we writing it for a consumer, for someone who's interested in wine and may have varying degrees of knowledge about it? Or are we writing this for ourselves or other wine writers, right? So I think, I think we have to challenge ourselves as the wine community to try to think in, in consumers' terms. I mean, 
for the vast majority of people, they're probably, you know, wine is a thing on their table. They, you know, maybe they have a wine fridge and they collect some wines, but are they really, you know, thinking about it to such a degree that we are? In my experience, that's not true. I'm the wine geek who brings six bottles of wine, you know, in my special wine bag to every dinner party that I go to. And I always try to talk to people about all the wines and they're like, uh-huh. Uh huh. And, <laughs> and so, but then when I say something like, okay, so think about this wine, this wine is like sort of crazy and jagged, like, you know, like a David Bowie song, you know, and I like bring in these pop cultural references. That's something that resonates with people, or you figure out what, what it is that they're excited about. And then you, you use those references. And I think that's, that's like an angle in kind of a, a secret back door to get people as excited is engage them on a thing they know about, and then use that as to something that's relevant. It's relevant. Yeah. I think I say we, those of us in the industry and particularly producers, I think are our own worst enemy working on a project and trying to audit what they looked like online. And all it was was bottle after bottle after bottle after bottle with a label close with maybe a bottle lying in a pile of grapes or, you know, a bottle on a dinner table. But there's no lifestyle imagery about it. And, it, 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 you know, one of the things I like to say is oh, if we can't bring people to wherever, whether it's New Zealand or Italy, how can we bring New Zealand or Italy to them? And so this lifestyle component about the wine is much more than the wine that the wine geeks like about, you know, linear or sharp or acidic or whatever terms that you want to use, and much more a contributor to whatever the event is. If it's just you and your wife and you're talking about something else during dinner, then it's the conversation that's happening there. Dinner party when nobody wants to talk about the wine, but you want to talk about the football game, the camaraderie that's going on down there. But most producers, you know, jump right to scores, labels, varietals, regions. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it is challenging. There's for producers, I and not being a producer, I can only imagine, but I think looking probably at the US market, it must just feel like this behemoth that is impossible to engage with. And so I think the baseline of engagement is to have those bottle shots, to have the descriptions, right? But then how do you engage with an audience beyond that, you know, if, if you've done that, those baseline things, that just means you're going to be able to supply publications or distributor sites or retailers with the right facts. But on top of that, how is it that you can help people visualize how to engage with your wine? Like, I think those lifestyle sort of scenes, you know, is, is this an everyday wine? Is this a collectible wine? What types of occasions might this wine be useful for in people's lives? Is this a great gift for your you know, grumpy wine loving boss? Is this a great gift for, you know, someone else in your life? So I think helping people connect the dots is something that producers can can do. But you know, I think one thing we have to acknowledge is that it's getting harder and harder on social media for them to, you know, produce some lifestyle shots and imagine that they're going to get much lift. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the platforms, you know, well, there's more, you know, TikTok, LinkedIn, yada, yada, all of these additional ones. But for, for sort of the core platforms, it's gotten harder and harder to build organic reach. 
And what that means is that you have to engage in a new way. I think, and what I see a lot of wine brands doing successfully, is them engaging with micro-influencers. So small people who have a small wine following. It could be a thousand people, 5,000 people. But if they have good engagement on their social media, maybe it's time to do a social giveaway with them or an Instagram chat with them and the winemaker, right? So how do you get your brand involved in some of these types of partnerships, which aren't that expensive to you know, activate? They're actually probably cheaper in a lot of ways than paid advertising on those platforms. So you know, my advice to brands looking to connect with different audiences in the United States is to team up with influencers, don't have to be huge, can be micro-influencers, and maybe do a campaign of several talks. And and in each of these talks, you're reaching a different micro-audience, but it can be really, it can have a lot of traction and result in sales. So that type of pairing and new thinking around content production is is where I see brands engaging effectively. Yeah, Two words that jump into my mind as you're talking about that is relevance and resonance. And he's both relevant to what they're thinking about and things that are important to them and resonates because it gives them something new to talk about, some new knowledge that it imparts or a new way to enjoy it. I kind of simplify it to say that the challenge as I'm dealing with producers who are often in the case of wines, farmers right? And are not communications experts or experienced communications people is a better description for you and I, because I don't think we're experts at, at that, is to get them, meaning general consumers, to tell your story in their words to their friends. That's what influencer marketing is all about. And whether it's codified through an ad auction based site, or you're paying a fee to an influencer that is disclosed on their web, however it happens, the real point of the matter is because we know the most important recommendation is not a score, is not a display. It's one person telling another people, oh, you should try this wine. We had it with whatever, and it was really great. Exactly. That's so true. And I think that because it, it's interesting because I would definitely agree that like the number one thing you want to aim for is that positive word of mouth from people, right? So just from someone who loved your wine and wants to talk about it on their social feeds or wants to talk about it to their friends in real life. One thing that's like a little like interesting to the side is I think during COVID, I've actually seen the importance of these micro influencers go up and brands, more brands, and a lot of wine brands start to engage with these micro influencers because people aren't seeing one another in real life. So that word of mouth has like sort of faded away as we've all done this social distancing, but there's still ways to engage with those people in like the absence of that. So it's, you know, other things to think about, I think is there's so many wine podcasts now for consumers. Like this one. <laughs> well, it's not a consumer one, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So and so I think, you know, trying to, as an individual wine producer, I, I think, you know, pitching podcasts about appearing on, you know, saying like, hey, I want to appear on your podcast as a guest. Or there's so many newsletters now, little blogs and newsletters. And I think it's, it's interesting because you talked about the death of journalism, but I find now that blogs, podcasts, 
newsletters, publications are more important than ever because we don't have restaurants, bars at the scale we once did. We don't have real life interaction in the way that we once did. So these things have taken on an increasing importance. So it's it's funny because like for a while I thought, you know, okay, if I were a wine brand, would I really need to employ someone for public relations? And at the time when brands were able to build their own audiences on Facebook and Instagram, I would have said maybe not. But now that trend has reversed. The cost of participating on Facebook and Instagram has gone way up. In-person interactions have gone way down. And so what are we doing more of? Consuming more of these channels and brands have to find a way to do it at scale. So partnering with micro-influencers, appearing on podcasts, appearing on newsletters, uh, appearing in uh, publications, those are all channels to get in front of the consumers that you want to reach. And so it's someone recent, recently asked me, you know, should, should my brand have a, a public relations person? I said, you know what, it's actually more important than ever. Interesting. So you had mentioned death of journalism. Actually, this was before we came on air. I, the words I used was wither the future of journalism. It just said, just like in terms of leveraging it for commercial purposes with PR, there's all this fragmentation of media. So there's a lot more outlets. A lot of them are personal outlets. But what about the people who were trained in journalism? Is there a future for them to get actually paid and paid what they're worth? You're one of the few publications out there that actually does pay for it. Now you're going to get inundated with calls, but but, but pays for articles because so many people are willing to do it for free. Where's that all going? Yeah. I mean, I think publishing in general, and this was, was one of the reasons that I left the big publishing world, publishing revenue models are broken. And I, I don't have the answer to it. I think a lot of brands, including the big ones like Condé Nast, are still trying to figure this out. But I what I really see an escalation of is talent-owned publications. So what I mean is Substack, for example, and people building up their small audiences, which may be 1,000 subscribers or 10,000 subscribers or 50,000 subscribers into paid subscriptions. So you're really seeing the trend line of that start to increase where creators are saying, you know what, it's just not worth it to me to pitch to some of these publications for a couple hundred dollars when and I could build up my own audience. And I, I think that's that's one of the big key trends that I'm I'm seeing. Because once you own your own audience, you can interact with them how and when you want. And so let me just say that this is not only for creators, this is for wine brands. Wine brands, every single wine brand should have its own newsletter database, should be interacting with its audience on a regular basis and working to grow that audience. Because as every other platform gets more and more expensive to compete on, to advertise on, this is the one channel that you own completely. You're not responsible like to whatever Google's SEO changes are or Facebook's algorithm changes or any of the other platforms. Once you own your newsletter audience, you own it forever. So growing that audience and having a value added way to interact with them, either you're doing regular content or you're giving offers or you're, you're doing a wine club or what have you. There's a million ways to activate on a newsletter strategy 
but I would say it is absolutely essential for every brand. Interesting that the parallel on the uh, on the trade side is uh, the differentiation I'm seeing in a lot of these direct to consumer or e-commerce platforms is who owns the relationship with the purchaser. So with third-party delivery sites like Drizzly, my understanding is Drizzly owns that. And in some sites like City Hive and WineFetch, which do the e-commerce, basically it's white label e-commerce, they own the data. And the retailers that I've talked to say that's a huge difference for them. And that's one of the, not few ways, but one of the most important ways to be able to compete with Total Wine, other big box stores, and other channels that seem to be eroding the retail store, that there always will be a place for a brick and mortar store, but they have to provide more value. And the way to do that is communicating with their customers. Yeah, definitely. And and I'd also say PIX falls into the category of getting out of the way of, of the retailer and the consumer. So we we are the matchmaker. We facilitate that connection. But instead of some of the other platforms that own the data, all of our data goes to, so the click goes straight through to the retailer. The retailer owns that transaction. They own that consumer. They have the relationship forever. That's one of the key differences and why PIX as a platform has been so you know enthusiastically embraced by and also funded by a lot of people from the wine industry. I normally end uh, each interview asking, what's the big takeaway from that? But you just gave us two big takeaways <laughs> in, your, in your presentation. So I, I'm not going to to do that. But I do want to thank you for sharing the time here. It was a very stimulating conversation and some really interesting perspective on how things are changing both on the journalism side and also on the commercial side of actually buying, selling, and talking about wine. I, I think we all recognize that it's all about the journey, not the destination. And these are just new ways to find out about new things. And there's always something new to find out about at wine. And then share it with somebody else. And then sharing the wine with them as well as the information, that's what makes the world go around and makes us all happy. Yeah, it is It is a fascinating time to be in the wine industry and especially on the digital side. There's so much change happening right now. And I think it just behooves wine brands and retailers and really everyone in the industry to be looking around and saying, how can I get involved? How can I connect with consumers in new ways? Because even with, you know, Hopefully COVID will come to an end, but I think a lot of the purchasing behaviors, the search behaviors, the discovery behaviors that we grew during COVID are going to stay with us forever. And I, I think a lot of trend forecasting bears that out. I think it's going to be with us forever. So to be in this area of the industry at this very moment feels like the exact right place to be. If people want to reach out to you, what email they should use and also uh, some of the social handles for you and or picks so to reach out to me people can email me at erica e-r-i-c-a dot d at picks dot wine so it's just p-i-x dot w-i-n-e and then my social handles are on instagram and twitter they're both at erica ducey so it's e-r-i-c-a d-u-e-c-y all one word you before the E. I've, I've been, been been corrected. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Erica Ducey, uh, a good friend in the industry with some really interesting comments from the world of content and commerce. So Erica, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, for all of our listeners, we hope you come back next week and uh, listen in on our next guest. 
So Erica, thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi, everybody. Italian Wine Podcast celebrates its fourth anniversary this year, and we all love the great content they put out every day. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People has become a big part of our day, and the team in Verona needs to feel our love. Producing the show is not easy, folks. Hurting all those hosts, getting the interviews, dropping the clubhouse recordings, not to mention editing all the material. Let's give them a tangible fan hug with a contribution to all their costs. Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com and click Donate to show your love.